You're listening to Zeros on Heroes with Mike Mercadol. everybody welcome to zeros on heroes my name is mike mercadal thank you so much to everybody who's been listening and liking and sharing and subscribing and writing reviews and and uh following us on social media at zeros on heroes and uh on everything and and following me personally at mike mercadal uh on everything if you figured out how to spell my name it's right there in front of you on the thing you're listening to this right now um the uh, live unsung heroes show at, at the Creek in the Cave in Long Island City, Queens, every Thursday at 8 p.m. is so much fun. If you're subscribed to this, you're subscribed to that. Uh, if you're not listening to that, what do you do? It's so much fun. And if you're in the New York area and you've and you have any ounce of curiosity, come to the show. It's a warm, inviting space. We have a ton of fun. The comedians at the Creek are all hilarious, and you can be on the show. And and also. You can be drunk if you want to be on the show. I don't know. Drunk people love a microphone. We've gotten a few, but uh, but we're we're ready to rock every Thursday, and you are more than welcome to join us and talk about the next one. I mean, depending on when you're listening to this, but the, at the time of this recording, the next one is all about Fantastic Beasts and where to find them is coming out. So uh, Harry Potter, magic, we're going to be talking about all that stuff. We're getting sorted in the houses. It's going to be a good time. But enough about that. This episode, this episode is all about Nat Geo mars it's the it's the the this space it's about mining and and colonizing mars or at least making an effort to and it's on season two and season two at the time of this recording just dropped their season premiere on the 12th and um it's a solid show in terms of that it combines very much like prospect if you heard the prospect episode there's a sense of creating the reality but this is above and beyond they're they're going through for scientific accuracy accuracy in air quotes of course because it's all speculative but like speculating in the most scientifically accurate way um having the 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 story be told in a way that is not like ripping you out of reality and uh you know like it was very interesting the way they did the press room because they also not only did they have the showrunners and a few of the actors but they also had like scientist, future, futurist, futurist, and physicist Michio Kaku. I don't know what to, what to and and uh, Lucienne Walkowitz, who is an astrobiologist. Like they, they are consultants on their, their consultants on the show, or at least giving their opinions on the show. Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian and has and and writes a lot about um, that specificity of science in fiction, you know. And Dr. Stephen Pasternak, who's uh, a, a, a scientific author on Mars as well, and 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 he wrote. Uh, how we'll live on Mars, and and, and and that's what they base the series on. But it's also got the season two is also show, season one. It talks all about that the first steps into Mars. Season two apparently is about the broadening scope, like the Wild West of what happens when you get different groups of people do disagreeing groups of people. Like not everyone has a single unified vision. Imagine if that happens on mars uh it's it's pretty it's pretty great um the first section of interviews that we got to do was with andy weir and dr stephen pasternak and uh they, they, it was they were all having a good time so it was a, it was a fun event for everybody uh take a listen Yes. Yep. Yep. We're mid flow. You get a head yeah. start. Yeah. Go. Um, I was just trying to think up a you know a manned mission to Mars and the problems that could go wrong and um, you know what happens if this breaks, that breaks, these two things break at the same time. How do you design the mission profile so that? you know, the crew doesn't die. And I realized it might make a good story. And kind of that was how I started. So I didn't set out to go like, I'm going to write a book about colonization of Mars. I was just like, hey, this is a neat daydream. <laughs> nice. Uh, oh, are we going to go this oh, way? Go I'm not sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. I apologize. In, in, in the U.S., we drive on the other side of the road. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, for for both, I, I just recently saw posted. Someone posted a picture of uh, from the Curiosity rover, a picture of Earth from that perspective, uh, and uh, the caption on the picture was like, "Everybody in for the group picture." <laughs> and uh, I always like, I think I like comedy. Do you guys use any specific way to get a, to get through to people, relate to them on a human level, to broaden their perspective? Well, Andy used drama really brilliantly to do it. Um, I happen to believe that you can do it with facts because I think the facts are so amazing 
and the difference between Mars and Earth and what we're capable of doing and have been capable of doing for the last 50 years are so fascinating that the facts will actually convince people. Uh, as for me, my main use for humor is uh, to make exposition more palatable. Like when I have to explain a bunch of detailed science to the reader, I mean, nobody wants to stop their action novel to read a Wikipedia article, right? So just throw in some jokes and the uh, readers will forgive you for anything. <clears throat> make them laugh. And make them laugh. So my question is about how much research goes, in my mind, we're talking like years of research that have to go into it because when when you're watching <clears throat> shows, movies, reading the books, I feel like, and maybe this is the intent, that, that the line between um, fact and fiction can be blurred. So how do you straddle that line and how much research well, as far as the Nat Geo series, um, all the fictional material was based on factual research. In other words, we tried extremely hard not to do anything or say anything in the series uh, that wasn't based on known fact that we should be able to do. Um, I had nothing to do with the creative side of the series. I'm only there in the uh, non-fiction interview portions. So I, 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 I had nothing to do with the creative side. But for my personal writing approach, I'm, always, I'm, I'm really heavily focused on accurate science. And the research is pretty significant. But for me, that's the fun part. I love, like, looking this stuff up. And people think I have this Rolodex full of, like, NASA phone numbers and stuff like that. But it's really, I just Google. I just Google for everything. Google answers me in, like, .002 seconds, or as a NASA guy would take, like, three days. <laughs> So I guess I'll take it back a little bit. <laughs> Are you Mike or Slade? We don't even know. You'll find out. Okay. So uh, I'll take back on that a little bit. A little bit. Uh, how scientifically accurate you make the show? Has there ever been anything either in the show or you know in your personal writing that you just you really wanted to do but you couldn't get there, or something that you thought maybe also on the, on the other side that uh, you just connected the dots in such a way you're like, oh look what I just created, you know? Well, we, we had about uh, five different scenarios for the captain of the spaceship dying on the uh, going to Mars. And uh, basically the script writers wouldn't buy any of them. So uh, there's, there's a lot of give and take here. You know, when, uh, when the Lucrum team gets to Mars, the whole concept of why they're there and how they're there and what they're doing um, and the tension that's in that is based on... Um, on some slightly sketchy stuff, so we we took we took some chances. We we guessed um, that liquid water would be found on Mars, and between the time we ended shooting and the time it will be shown, liquid water has been found on Mars. We guessed that there's probably some uh, tectonic movement on Mars, um, some kind of uh, a volcanic movement of some sort still going on on Mars, and in the time. While we were shooting, in fact, we found out that there are earthquakes on Mars, although they're not severe. So you walk right up to the edge of the facts in trying to satisfy the people who are trying to write drama that will keep uh, the viewers interested in the program. Uh, for me, it's always like I really, really don't want to deviate from scientific accuracy. So sometimes I come up with cool plot ideas and the science says, like, nope, I can't do that. But other times I'm, I go way down the rabbit hole on the science and it creates plots for me that I didn't even realize. Like when I wrote The Martian, I, that was before we knew there was so much water on Mars. So at the time I wrote it, we thought it was this arid nothingness. And like I'm like, oh, he's going to need a lot of water to grow those plants. So that's a problem. And I did the math on that, and that's what created that plot point. But in terms of just straight-up cheating, uh, a windstorm on Mars could not possibly knock over a spacecraft. It's just like not it can barely knock over a piece of paper. So I just said like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> or if they do, they go fact check you. Yeah, they yeah. gotta get there to fact check you. Mm-hmm. Uh, since the show premiered to now, there have been more shows and movies about going to space. And do you feel like there's a renewal of interest in, in space travel? Uh, I think there is. I think there's a, um, a a virtuous cycle, you know, the opposite of a vicious cycle, right? A virtuous cycle when it comes to space travel, the entertainment industry, and then space funding. 
So basically, if the inter- when the entertainment industry amps up shows and stuff about real space travel, public interest in it increases. Public interest in it increasing leads to more funding for both private and public space ventures. Um, private and public space ventures accomplishing things also increases interest, and it also drives demand for more space shows. So it just kind of goes around in a circle that's good for everybody. That's my opinion. I'm very grateful to Andy for doing The Martian because um, I gave a TED Talk about going to Mars and only about half the people in the room believed me. And about three months later, the movie came out and then all I got was stuff from people at TED saying, wow, you were right, this is amazing, you know. It's obviously true since they made a movie about it. The the movie Gravity and the movie The Martian and the movie Interstellar, I think, have moved the needle on people accepting the idea that we can get off this planet in in ways that probably all the scientific literature in the world could never have done. So I'm, I'm very grateful to the media, to the public media, for having done this. And I'm very grateful to 20th Century Fox for making a $100 million advertisement for my book. Um, <laughs> it sold like a lot of copies because of that. So I'm like super stoked. I read the book before the movie. I oh, just no. want to say that. Ah, before it was cool. Yeah. Hipster. So in, in all the research, and you, you said you're all factually based, like everything you've done is completely factual. Um, with all the research that you've done and, and all the stuff you said, well, I mean, most of it. But uh, what is like the most likely way you think we'll get to Mars at this point using current technology or technology that you've seen that you've come up through your research that uh, that we may be able to use better than just like solid fuel rocketry and all that? Well, NASA has all the technology they need to get to Mars. They just have no plans to actually land people on Mars. They have sort of sketchy plans to fly around Mars sometimes in the, sometime in the 2030s. Um, I think if Elon Musk stays alive and if he gets as much money out of Tesla as he hopes to get out of Tesla, that he will build a rocket that will get people to Mars. And I think a private company is more likely to land on Mars before a public venture does. And that that will probably happen before 2030. Um, I guess I hold the opposite view. I don't see a private company beating a government entity to be the first humans on Mars because once the price gets low enough that a private company can do it, a government will contract the private company for all the parts necessary to do it. And, and, and I mean, there's a point at which the price gets down to where governments can afford it and private entities can't, and then it gets driven down further. I think we will eventually have private entities going to Mars, but I, I suspect the government will be first. As for Elon Musk, I, I don't believe SpaceX is going to go to Mars anytime soon. Um, I think, however, that SpaceX will be very successful in um, driving down the price to low Earth orbit, which will enable large coalitions of, probably coalitions of multiple governments to do a flags and footprints mission. Now, we can talk forever about how flags and footprint style missions aren't really that useful, but we're just talking about the first humans that get to Mars for this question, so that's that's my answer. And once they cross that Rubicon, then... Okay. okay, well then, thank you. Um, I, so, I want someone else to... <laughs> it's a British thing, yeah. I don't know what it is. Uh, you're talking about getting to low Earth orbit, you're talking about uh, everything rocket-based so far. Uh, we watch science fiction films like Elysium, like 2001, and we see enormous space stations in orbit. And there's been a lot of talk recently in the press because of, a, of an experiment that's taking place aboard the ISS by the Japanese uh, to basically test a scale-down space elevator. Uh-huh. Do you think space elevators are actually going to be the way forward in moving people and payloads into geostationary orbit to build the next level of space stations? I believe absolutely a space elevator is going to be the, the big quantum leap in technology that gets us routinely into space. However, I don't think a space elevator will be invented before we have Mars missions. I just think that the materials technology isn't there. We're almost there, but I think it's actually easier right now to go to Mars with our current technology than it is to invent a space elevator. But I do believe in the future, space elevator is going to be the thing. We're talking about 25 bucks a kilogram to get into low Earth orbit. It'll be amazing. I, I agree with Andy that um, we're much more likely to get to Mars before we are before we build a space elevator. The big problem is the wire 
or the cable. You know, as as Musk is famous for saying, you know, show me something that can't be cut in half by a 50-cent piece of uh, space debris, and I'll be happy to build it. There are significant breakthroughs going on in that field at the moment. Yeah, well, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> good luck. They're working Re- on it. Remember, it goes all the way up. It goes through the debris fields. It will be hit by debris. Yeah. The idea is you need redundancy. It's a nice idea. I doubt it that we will see it in our lifetimes. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the Japanese have a, have a first-generation prototype. They believe they can build a first-generation prototype by 2050. Yeah, the, the Japanese Chinese believe they can build a first-generation prototype by 2045. Well, the, the We'll be Japanese, on Mars before then. You reckon? Yeah. Okay. Japanese companies often make pretty bold claims about what they're going to do. Like, one of them just a few years ago was talking about paving the moon's equator with solar cells to right. power all of Earth. Right. Um, yeah, that's not also not going to happen in our lifetime. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Throwing shade at a Japanese space company who wants to pave the moon. Yeah, or, yeah, it's like, what a weird beef. Like, yeah, fuck you, space elevators. Get out of here with that shit. Prove it. I, well, in all fairness, that's that's kind of what science is. Prove it. Science is basically a bunch of people who have just been challenging each other to prove it for uh, two millennia, which... Leads us to Mars. Like, we, we're we almost there. The next section of interviews um, is interesting because these this this guy I've been a huge fan of for a long time. And uh, Michio, Dr. Michio Kaku, he's uh, a futurist and physicist. And the guy's job is basically to think about the future. But realistically, there's not a lot of people whose job that is. That's really cool. And um, uh, Lucianne Walkowitz, is, uh, she's astrobiology chair of the Kluge Center of the Library of Congress and astronomer at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. Again, knows what she's talking about. It was thoroughly impressive to me that I got to talk to such like high-minded and forward-thinking and and uh, incredibly smart people. I just think of that as a big honor and it was really nice to kind of sit down and talk to him. That's the next part of the interview. They're both on-air experts in Mars season 2. Professor Kaku. Yes. Uh, now, uh, you've talked about uh, I mean, the show, obviously, it's about Mars, and uh, a couple of things. Do you think life isn't sustainable on Mars? But you also, and obviously, in the show, there's no Martians. You've talked about you don't want us to meet alien life. Uh, what do you think about that? Is it sustainable? Also, why do you not want us to meet alien life? Well, yes, I think life is sustainable, but you have to meet certain criteria. You have to have a supply of water, you're going to have to melt the ice to get that. You're going to have to have a supply of energy. You're going to have to have solar panels to get that. You're going to have to have a source of uh, shelter. You're going to have to use, for example, lava tubes that are naturally occurring, caves, to provide uh, shelter for, for the astronauts. And then you have to have food, which means eventually you're going to have to genetically modify algae and things like that to create a new breed of species that can thrive on the atmosphere of Mars. So if self-sustainability is the key, you have to have food, you have to have shelter, you have to have um, uh, water, you have to have these basic ingredients to be self-sufficient. And then the question is, are we going to meet aliens on Mars? (laughs) I hope so. I really hope so. But I think the probability of that is very close to zero. We've looked everywhere. I've talked to astronomers who say that they're not covering up the existence of aliens because they would become famous if they found an alien species on Mars. But I think it's inevitable we will one day encounter intelligent life in outer space, Um, maybe in this century. We're listening to stars everywhere, and so far we see no discernible signal of intelligent life. But I think it's inevitable that we will eventually make contact with an intelligent species in outer space. Then the last question is, why don't they land on the White House lawn and advertise their existence? Well, my attitude is, if you walk in a forest and you meet a squirrel, do you try to talk to the squirrel? Do you try to talk to the deer? No, because they don't talk back to you and you lose interest after a while. Well, we are like the squirrels and the deers, so that's why they don't land on the White House lawn. We're not interesting. Sorry about that. Plus, they know it's already occupied. Um, uh, My name is Mike I'm from Zeros on Heroes uh, Podcast Nerd related We're here at New York Comic Con One of the things that uh, I've always been really interested in Is how um, When we get to Space exploration Deep space We will be Genetically different 
through generations over time, like long, big picture. Uh, so by the time we do colonize Mars, will we then have superpowers? <laughs> Is that where it finally happens? That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm not sure that Mars, well, maybe living on Mars for a long period of time would actually create some of those genetic changes. You know, one of the, the big unknowns for um, any kind of long-term space travel, whether it's like out into deep space or whether it's on Mars, is that we really have no idea of what happens to the human body. So um, you probably heard about the, uh, the Kelly twins um, who just did this experiment where one twin stayed on Earth, one twin stayed up for... Um, a full year on the ISS, and they're actually just now um, getting ready to publish all of the genetic changes. Um, so even in these two people that, you know, these two underachieving twins who both became astronauts. Yeah. Um, the average Joes. Yeah. <laughs> Hope for us all. Yeah. Um, you know, we do see that there are different genetic changes um, in their in their genome. But the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, you know, some genetic changes are not great. Um, you could end up with more more cancers, more birth defects. We just don't know. We know that the environment on Mars is super high radiation and like, you know, in the comics that usually results in superpowers, but... Your incredible hulks and such, yeah. yeah. Uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, the thing. Uh, one of my favorite, I'm sorry, one of my favorite stories is the John Carter of, from Mars story where it talks about the gravity being different. Yeah. Would that, would, uh, a species that lives and grows and develops through that lower gravity, is that that's all big picture also for Mars colonization as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, every one of our astronauts that goes to space and comes back, comes back even if they're young and healthy with osteoporosis because your bone density goes down. So if you were to grow in an environment with lower gravity, maybe you'd have weaker bones. But then, then maybe that means that the first people that go and live on Mars will actually have, like, super strong bones by comparison um, because they will have the, like, densest bones that will ever exist on Mars. I didn't mean to bring it all down. Sorry, I mean, that was a real bummer. <laughs> well, I'll bring it down even further with, um, so, one of the worst movies I've ever seen called <laughs> The Titan. And it's about um, adapting humans to live on Titan, one of the Jupiter's moons. Yeah, that was horrible. It was horrible. But, but I'm bringing it up because I, I want to hear, I know we're focused on Mars, but I want to hear about where you think are the most hospitable environments for humans to travel to. And are we looking at Mars simply because of the distance and, and temperature and things that we feel like we can overcome at this point? Or are there other places that we feel are more hospitable to, to what we require? Well, I think we're going to go to Mars by default. Uh, Venus is our evil twin, for example. Temperatures are up to 900 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the inside of a baker's oven. You don't want to be on Venus or Mercury. And Jupiter and Saturn, the gas giants, have no solid surface. Titan, you mentioned, and Celadus, Europa are possibilities, but it's very cold. They're frozen solid, and uh, they have a liquid ocean, we think, underneath the ice cover, but it's really cold that far from the sun, and they have very, very low gravity. So I think as far as our solar system is concerned, Mars is by default the, the place of choice. Now, once we have starships, perhaps in another 100, 200 years, then we may go to Proxima Centauri. And then it's a whole new ball game once we start to go to the stars. But I think for our solar system, uh, Mars is pretty much it. And as was mentioned, we may have to genetically modify ourselves to metabolize um, oxygen, lower oxygen content. Temperatures are going to be lower, requiring less water. Uh, we're going to we may have to genetically modify ourselves, and also maybe even cybernetically modify ourselves as well, so that one day if we meet aliens from outer space in a flying saucer, they may actually be genetically and cybernetically modified to withstand the rigors of interstellar travel. They may look like an ordinary alien, but inside <laughs> but inside they may be genetically and cybernetically altered to withstand radiation, weightlessness, genetic mutations, and so on and so forth. So a little more um, lighthearted. Uh, so there's some there's some other scientists who you know, kind of publicly um, talk about their nitpicks, some sci science fiction films and things like that. 
Are there any that you have that are like guilty pleasures? Like, what, what are your favorite science fiction shows, movies, TV shows, even if they're totally not plausible? What, what do you, what, are there any that you really like? Specifically about space or just, just broadly sci fi? Sci fi. Broadly sci fi. Hmm. I've been watching Maniac, and I love it. And it is—it's totally like a Terry Gilliam-esque world of you know mixing people's brainwaves together. Very campy, not at all sciency, and it's awesome. <laughs> well, usually when I see a science fiction movie, initially I cringe because they get all the laws of physics wrong. This is not my universe that we're talking about. However. When I was a child, when I was a child, I was fascinated by the life of Albert Einstein. But on Saturday mornings, they had Flash Gordon on TV. Buster Crab. With Buster Crab. Mm-hmm. I was hooked. I mean, cities in the sky, invisibility, uh, all the stuff that became Star Wars. Star Wars is a clone of Flash Gordon. And George Lucas even admitted that. So ever since then, I've been a science fiction junkie. I've watched everything. I cringe all the time. But hey, it's fantasy, you know. Get off your high horse. I mean, it's fun. And science fiction inspired many of the great scientists of the world. Edwin Hubble, the greatest astronomer of the last century, was inspired by Jules Verne to leave his career as a country lawyer to go to the University of Chicago, get a PhD in astronomy, and discover the expanding universe. All the many of the great scientists of the world were inspired by science fiction. Uh, Carl Sagan was inspired by the John Carter of Mars series by Edgar Rice Burroughs. That's why he decided to become an astronomer to chase Dejah Thoris on the sands of Mars. So there's a cross-fertilization there. So initially we cringe, but hey, you know, it's fantasy. Yeah, you know, I think that it's important for people to realize that, like, science is not some you know, topic that is, like, outside the reach of everybody who doesn't, like, know intimately the laws of physics. Like, and that's that's what I think is at the heart of people nitpicking science fiction, is that it's this way of making science fiction kind of exclusive, but, like, space is, I think, for everybody, and so as a topic for making art, whether it's film or poetry or science fiction, you know, I think that we have to be a little bit flexible um, and not just tear it apart because it isn't science fact all the time. One of my favorite movies is actually uh, The American Astronaut, which is a super lo-fi, like, space cowboy movie that has absolutely nothing to do with anything about being an astronaut (laughs) or other planets um, or anything, but it's awesome. Fun to watch. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Uh, I wonder if, do you have any personal theories about this space travel that you would like to see in this show or maybe another movie or another show? Personal theories about space travel. Um, Well, you've worked a lot on the 100-year starship, haven't you? Yeah. Well, to me, this is just the beginning, sort of like Columbus with his rickety ship going across the Atlantic Ocean. You kind of wonder, how did he do that? How did he go across the Atlantic Ocean on three leaky boats that later sink because they're not seaworthy at all? Would you want to go on the Nina and the Santa Maria knowing that they're going to eventually be sunk? So I think when we look back at it, we realize how primitive things are and how great things are going to be in the future. Your cell phone has more computer power than all of NASA in 1969 when we put two men on the moon. So I say it was criminal. It was criminal in 1969 when we shot astronauts into space backed up by one cell phone. But that's all they had back in 1969, the power of one cell phone. So I think that bigger and better things await us. And as was mentioned, some of us believe that in a 100-year time frame, we may have the first starship. Uh, Stephen Hawking was invested in the Breakthrough Starshot program to put a chip, a chip on the nearest star in 20 years, traveling at 20% the speed of light. So I think the next step beyond this could be to build a starship. Uh, I think um, that point about Breakthrough Starshot is a, is an interesting one because I, uh, I work on the Breakthrough Listen project, which is the like, SETI side of the Breakthrough stuff. And um, I always think it's funny to think about what it might be like for another civilization to be like minding its own business when a microchip traveling at 20% of the speed of light shoots through its system. <laughs> you know, if you think about like what the reaction to um, Sputnik was, 
just for like a little ball that had some antennas and beeped, went around the earth at a perfectly reasonable speed. So the aliens going to get a fly swatter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and swat that chip. Do we have time for one more question, please? Thank you. Go ahead. Okay. Um, all right. So if we do go to Mars, right, and we do start building a civilization there, we've done a lot to this planet. What do you think the most important lessons are we should take to another planet when we start, you know, uh, terraforming and start creating a new civilization there, migrating civilization there? Because we've done, we've got a lot of things that we need to fix. Because we're jumping, I'm going to tag on because my question is very similar. Do you think the civilization on Mars would actually grow apart from the civilization on Earth? Like we've seen in the expanse, like we saw in um, Babylon 5, this kind of thing, and, you know, declare its own independence, for instance. Yeah, I think um, one thing to think about uh, is this intersection with our ideas about what we can do to Mars and environmental science here on Earth. A lot of the ideas about terraforming that are out there basically amount to like global strip mining operations, and we can see very clearly here on our own Earth the damage that we've brought to our own environments, um, places that we would perhaps have otherwise liked to live or at least visit by things like strip mining. So when we look at something like terraforming, I mean, um, you know, for me, as a scientist who's deeply invested in figuring out whether there was life on Mars or there might still be life today, terraforming represents, like, the ruination of the ability to answer that question. You cannot terraform Mars and also investigate its history. It's over. Um, because you're making a giant change to the, like, chemical and biological balance of the planet. So... You know, I think that uh, certainly living on Mars in a you know more contained environment that's much more I think feasible. Anyway, because we're like reverse terraforming this planet already, anyhow. So we clearly don't know how to control our environment. Um, so we might still yet live on Mars, and in that case. Certainly at the beginning stages where we're trying to depend on the Earth, you know, the Earth is a far more habitable place than Mars will ever be. And so we'll still be dependent on Earth for things like supplies. But if it ever comes to a point in which the, um, the settlement on Mars is truly independent in terms of its food, its water, etc., then sure, um, you know, I think that the, they would naturally grow apart just, you know, by, by distance alone. Um, you could do essentially anything as a as a Martian. It would be a very long time until somebody ever got to. <laughs> well, speaking about humanity spreading out, this actually happened seventy thousand years ago. Seventy thousand years ago, we had an event that destroyed almost every single Homo sapien on the planet Earth. Only a few hundred of us escaped that catastrophe. Probably the Toba volcano in Indonesia that blew up. From that small group of maybe a hundred people, the entire human race outside Africa was formed, the Great Diaspora. Now, we may be undergoing a second Great Diaspora, like what happened 70,000 years ago, when we go to Mars. And we have starships that go at sub-light speed to different parts of, of the universe. Now, what happened is, well, of course, but then we invented the jet plane. Now we can meet other humans who left us 70,000 years ago and reconnect after the Great Diaspora. I think that's going to happen to us once we get warp drive. We're not going to get warp drive for many, many centuries, right? But I think until then, we could have a great diaspora, like what happened 70,000 years ago. Different settlements on different star systems until we develop hyperdrive. At that point, we're going to reconnect with the, the human species after the great diaspora, like we today are connecting with jet airplanes with other humans that separated from us 70,000 years ago. So I think history is going to repeat itself. Man, those those people are so smart. Good lord. Michio Kaku's talking about a hyperdrive ship, like a starship, in the way that, like, for me, it's a fantasy that, you know, that may one day I'll have enough money to buy a Lamborghini, right? He's talking about how one day science is going to have a hyperdrive starship. It's like I understand a Lamborghini is real to him. Hyperdrive starships are that the same level of real. Like he's like, yeah, we just have we just don't have it yet. Ah, that's fascinating to me. And and Lucian Walkowitz, like talking about imagine like like being imagine your job is to get to 
these guys are so smart, man. These guys, it was so, I could have listened to talk to talk. I could have listened to them talk forever. I, I, I let's, I want to go to the Hayden Planetarium right now. The Museum of Natural History, American Museum of Natural History, Hayden Planetarium. I want to go right now. I want to see some space stuff. Man. Man, that was fun. To t- I would listen to them forever. Uh, the the next section of interviews was actually, it's interesting. They go from these lofty science minds to the actors in the show kind of know their role. They just, they, they, they've embraced that other people are thinking about all of this this uh, science and logic and creating the world around them with such intensity that they get to play around in. And you can kind of hear they were just, they were just not the stars of this press uh, room. They were, they, the science minds were clearly the stars and they were just, appre- they, were, they, they seemed so appreciative to be there. It was really interesting. We talked to Jihai um, and we talked to Jeff Hefner and we talked to Evan Hall and uh, the actors, they, they get it. They get it. And they're having, they're, look, I'll be honest with you, they were having some fun with it too. Uh, a get how it cool yeah. is that? You guys are much more high tech over so, here. I know. I know. It's kind of weird. We've been doing it. This guy just got fucking into it. That's amazing. Uh, so, what can you guys tell us? Uh, oh, I can tell about? you my back is killing me. <laughs> right. uh, oh, you mean about the show? About the show, like oh, we okay. expect for oh, season okay. two. <laughs> Who wants it? What's the question? We can. What we expect, expect for season two? You're a physicist, right? Season two, I think you're going to build off um, the the group that's already there, has established a community, a colony, and then some interlopers come in. And we represent business. We represent the next phase of what's going to happen on Mars. You know, we're going to come and we're going to look for water specifically. We're going to take part in helping them terraform and move some of their science forward potentially. But I think it's just I think it's the next step in the evolution of what happens once we're there. How do we make money off of it? How do we make it bigger? How do how do people on Earth benefit? You know, how do how do we screw it up? Yeah. Which we all know. <laughs> we know. <laughs> we're good at that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really about the conflict of ideology there between understanding this thing that we've just gotten to and then trying to figure out how to make money off of it, basically. Uh, which I think is something that you see happen on Earth a lot. We discover something, and then someone's like, how do we make money off of this? Which is such a bizarre thing, right? Why do we all instantly have to be like, well, how can I monetize this? How can I make this mine, make everybody else want it, and then lord over them that I have it? You know, it's like it's a, such a very human thing yeah. that we constantly do. I think this is just another look, of, look at it. It's hard, too, because it doesn't give people time to, like, understand. Like, we're dealing with plastics. We're just talking about plastics and how that was a that was a discovery. Somebody created that and understood it, and then someone immediately started utilizing it and selling it. And now we're realizing that it's causing all of this harm in the ocean and in various places on the planet. But um, you could watch a plastics commercial and go, and they tell you all these great things that plastics do. You're like, oh, yeah, you know what? You kind of need them. You know what I mean? So you can, you you got to wrestle with both sides of it. I think this show, I think this season gives you the opportunity to wrestle with both sides. Well, that's an interesting uh, question. Is the marketing of space travel, like uh, that's, because you're talking marketing of plastics. It's, oh, this is what we get out of it. And then you kind of play down the dangers of it. Is that to increase, you know, this is a, essentially a, a, a fictional show about a potential non-fiction future you know of, or like with that well, yeah. with that idea uh, what what would the, the the sales pitch for Mars tourism be <laughs> we'll remember it for you <laughs> well I mean there's a great I'm sure there's a great new beginning one liner oh okay new beginning <laughs> new beginning already yeah he's gonna go yeah, trademark yeah, like, half of the things that were oh. but no to your you're hunting my plan oh no <laughs> but I think that you know there's already companies that do this there's a company that has raised a bunch of money and I, I wish I knew what it was but they're gonna put it all on TV. And I think we touch on it a little with the, the Chinese uh, space station. They have to have cameras going 24 hours. That's how they're paying for it. They're, they're using it as a TV show. Well, television is a marketing That's all it is. tool. You know what I mean? Television was invented because they were like, oh, we're losing out on all this ad money from movies because they're done already. And then so television became a marketing kind of thing. So the monet, it's, it's, a, it's like a shame. It's like a 
weird dark spot on all of advancement is yeah. someone had to fund it, you know? Yeah. yeah. So it's like a Truman show. You're saying that like when we go up there we'll have like a Truman show esque kind of I'm saying we're in a Truman show right now. Oh, right, now. right now. This is a Truman show. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah, you're right. Nice place to live. I think though, as actors we deal I know I've thought about it. It's um it, it is the good and bad of me. It's like you're you're selling soap all day and yeah. toothpaste and, or other plastics or whatever things you may not really plastics. care to but you you think that you're um, you know, you're doing this artistic endeavor or being part of this really important message but hold on let's take a break and sell some some roundup for your grass you know what I mean so we you know in real life we're making that balance all the time and this show and what will happen up there is kind of the same thing and I think that's what people have to figure out and then the self awareness that goes with that is what leads to alcoholism anyway <laughs> <laughs> Cut to commercial for Johnny Walker. <laughs> Walk boldly or whatever their slogan is. Yes. Oh, that's it. You, know, you nailed it. Yeah. yeah. You did see Kevin Moore more, right? Anyone see that mm-hmm. movie, O.J. Simpson? That's kind of true show right there. So um, I minored in theater in college, so actor to actor. Um, <laughs> let's talk method acting yes. when it comes to, I mean, really, how do you prep for a role like this when there's no Mars to go and and practice on. Tell me a little bit about what you did to kind of you know, did you ride the vomit comment? Did you, what, what were the things I wish. what just, were the things that, that you did that sort of got <laughs> yeah. into that, that headspace to deliver on these roles? I think being in a foreign country where you can't read the road signs and you can't understand anything people are talking about. I think just being in a foreign world and a foreign place, and also our studio was an hour away from the city as well. So that gets you in the head of unfamiliarity. And um, and I think for me as a songwriter, I like to be alone a lot. And I, you know, for years just been spending a lot of time alone writing songs. And, and so it's easy for me to just kind of like get in my zone, you know. And also they build you a set that's based on what they've been told will be up there, you know, what it's going to be like. And so there's a lot of, it's a weird spot to be where in, when you're indoors, you're in somebody's pajamas or when you're outside, you're in a rubber suit. You know, there's, there's a lot of things you can link your brain to that are really odd, really uncomfortable. And, and by the time you're on Mars, you're going to have wrestled with things that are more than slightly terrifying so often that you, I'm sure there's a bravery badge that comes with that. Will you just kind of go head first into shit because you've had to? And I think once you do that enough, that you're like, okay, it's like when you're beginning as an actor, you start going to all these auditions. Like, this is the dumbest thing you'll ever do in your life. And then you just show up all the time. It's like anything. If you punch me in the head a hundred times, I'm a boxer, right? It's like you just get used to this stuff. And I think that you can apply that, that maybe this is my justification, but like you can apply that up there. <laughs> yes, for showing up you just over. immerse yourself yeah. and it happens. Yeah, I, I know. For me, I had like a really I don't know I don't know about <laughs> either of you guys, but I only had a week before I had to go. I didn't. I only knew like a week before I flew out. That was my first. Oh, so you yeah. weren't the you were second choice. Definitely second choice. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were looking around. No one bit. Brad Pitt was out. Yeah. yeah. Ethan Hawke was working. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I had like a week, and so I spent an entire day and I live in the city so I went to the Hayden Planetarium and I spent the entire day just walking around and uh, got with one of the docents and had him just I, I followed him around all day just asking him different questions like, he, like, he was horse? really annoyed yes he was he was literally riding around <laughs> come with me <laughs> for the podcast listener yeah. <laughs> he's with his hands um, and that really helped out because I there's so much information out there about um, all of it, about the, the uh, astronomy and, and, and planets and things. And I started getting like really freaked out, and then I realized kind of that that made sense for my character. 
that there's a fear there. So, so you're, on a, you're on a really scientifically literate show, right? So yes. There's and a we, lot of yes, facts and things behind all of it. So what's what's something like that you've learned that you're like, oh, I just got to go tell somebody this, like my significant other or something like, oh my, did you know that Mars is a planet or whatever it is? It's red. We were asked this question earlier, and all three of us like. Uh, uh, it's been a year. It was red the horse. Yeah, it, was it was one thing. <laughs> I learned about the moxie. What's that? No, what's that? The moxie is a machine created by, I believe, University of Washington. It's a machine that um, takes carbon and turns it into breathable air. Oh. Yeah, it separates carbon monoxide into dioxide into monoxide. One of the two. That thing is insane. Yeah, and it actually, you can actually, that's why people can, you know... After the Apollo 13, we had enough, um, we had the rocket to go to Mars. Just there wasn't very much uh, to figure out how to maintain ourselves out there. But, but now we can. Now we have the things like the Moxie. And there's another machine, I forget what it's called now, that creates water from the atmosphere that takes uh, air yeah. out of the atmosphere. It's on this one too yeah. that is pulling um, carbon out of the air and using it to 3D print carbon fiber. So you'll be able to carbon fiber, you know, build everything up there just by sucking it out of the air. Whoa. I don't know, I made that part. Did you make that part? Yeah. No, I didn't. Actually, That's how good an actor, but a I believed it flat out. But there's 100%. a couple things I've learned, but I've kind of half learned, and I don't want to say them, because then they'll come back like, this guy's completely an idiot. He totally made that up. You're going to go research him. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. We're surrounded by scientific geniuses, and then it's like, there's a thing that uses science. You know, it's just yell science. It does the... It's on a horse. Let me tell about these Martian horses. I mean, I, there's a new thing that's come out where they, they've just discovered, like, the, that I, I thought was linked to this, about uh, they found the uh, evidence of uh, organic life on Mars recently. Oh, yes. um, and I think that's kind of insane because it goes back to what we're trying to look for. We, also, we live in a world where what surprises us anymore? You know, when you talk about what you've learned, you're like, oh, my... You could make up anything, and you're like, no, that actually exists. You know, it's like that carbon thing that that jerk actor was talking about. That really does exist. You know, <laughs> we live in a world. My kids, they everything everything they see, they're like, is that happening now? Like, they can't. Is that real? Like, they they can't parse what's real and what isn't because everything looks real. And and this show is a good example. It's like you look outside and. We're literally out in a parking lot in Budapest, but it looks like we're on Mars. When I saw it, I'm like, I'm kidding me. It looks amazing. I don't know what Mars looks like, but that looks amazing. And so when you start to listen, when you go and you want to learn things, you want to learn from the scientists and talk to them, it's like they say all these things, and you're like, yeah, that's happening, sure. You know, like, nothing's not uh, nothing's not believable. Right? <laughs> yeah. They're amazing. Two, three minutes left. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, Mars, Mars has always been the focus of science fiction writers' attention, from H.G. Wells up to Andy Weir. Uh, and, um, I mean, even uh, the History Channel did a miniseries, Mars, about the group of astronauts that went there. The, well, I think one of them dies on the surface, doesn't he? So, I mean, what, what have you read? Before, before any of this came along, had you read any works of science fiction? That sort of uh, 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 where Mars was in the central plot point, or even after you got this role, did you then think, right, I'm going to go and read up on this? I'm reading The High Frontier right now. Or even, uh, sorry, I read Bradbury's Martian Chronicles. Well, that was another classic example. I personally, no, did not read anything about Mars. My, my, my interest came from uh, the beyond corporate structure but like the employee structure my idea of going up there as an employee is like why am I going to do this if it's not just for me doing it for my family why is this corporation you know why am I participating in their wants and ills and so for me I'd rather understand why that person is motivated to go there I don't know how much money you got to pay a dude to do this it's less about the science it was about how do I how do I yeah and want to participate as labor in, in that environment. It's like, why do you want to send labor there? I'm not a scientist. I have nothing to gain. I can have that job on Earth in some capacity. 
do I do it on Mars? So what kind of cowboy am I in there? So I mean, I would my anything that I read or want to discover would be more about the, the person's motivation for going along. Mars could be could be Alabama, you know, for this guy. It's like, why am I digging that hole in that spot? Personally, even would you say you're actually deliberately staying away from it to try and maintain that focus? From the idea of like well, the, from, from, from the from Mars works. fantasies, yeah, yeah, yeah I think I think so because then it becomes fantastical and it gets a little bit away from the the direct humanity I want to pour into anything, you know. Because once you get into fantasy, you kind of can be fantastic, and and you have to stay focused on. He and I, particularly Evan and I, we're doing a job that is a, just a labor. It's, it's a one time. I'm out of here, you know. What I mean, and get the money and run. And so that mindset to me is, is more interesting for the character than. Yeah, I, I tried to figure out exactly. Yeah, same, very similar. I tried to figure out like what would be the monetary benefits for going to this thing. Like, I remember reading about the fact that the reason why we would want to go to Mars is because it's that much closer to the asteroid belt, which has like an insane amount of precious metals that we can utilize. And so, if we can build a, a station that will allow people to travel there and mine in this field, uh, they would. Be the first gazillion. That's what the life like, cares about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, I, I think it was it was more. It, it took me out of this little world that we live in. You know, that seems pretty fast already, but you know, we are literally like the tiniest little dot in, the, in this infinite universe. And for us to think that we're the only ones and we're the only special ones, it just it made me realize how small and how small we are and how. We are, actually we are, one human race, and we are, whether we like it or not, we are one, and we have to work together, and we have to get along. There are certain things, like going to space today, where it requires all these different nations to participate and cooperate, and we can't do it without without Russia, without China, without U.S. cooperating together, so, you know, the one element of, of the show that, that brings, that contributes to for me and for I think for culture is, is remembering that. Uh, <laughs> see a quick picture of three. Can you quick picture yeah. of three? Oh yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks. 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 Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, and I think the reason we can't answer what we learned on Mars... Well, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Anything I say, I ripped off from any of the... Thank you. Man, being a fake Mars explorer sounds so fun. Like a great time these guys were having. Uh, no, they were, they were really nice, and everybody seemed like they were having a great time and, and, and really thankful to be on this show that was... Uh, kind of moving science forward and it has a great dramatic arc in the first season and uh, yeah just uh, like if following on the heels of prospect last week uh, there was a uh, an idea of like seeking fame and fortune and that's the real draw like a one shot you know like crab fisherman go work a season and dip you know the that kind of thing um, now and and talking about how to make money and the marketing of it it was it was very interesting because I'm still looking for podcast sponsors. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, we live in a world of advertising. Someone's got to fund all this science that was so interesting, and um, and it was it was also interesting to see how Evan Evan Hall hearing a week until like a week before he had to go start shooting a role where he has to be a space Mars miner. Come on, that's cool. What a yeah, that's that's pretty solid. Um, but yeah, uh, moving on, we have our next uh, and final section of interviews, which is with uh, the, the producers, the, the showrunners, D. Johnson and Justin Wilkes. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Hello. 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 How are you? Hi. Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Um, all right. My name is Mike. I'm with Zeros on Heroes. Uh, we, I, talk, I ask people about their heroes on my show, and um, you're here, New York Comic Con. How do you portray heroes that are relatable in that kind of environment, and is there a goal to, to, to re, like a redeem a negative character or something when they're so isolated on Mars? It's, it's all speculative, but how do you keep it human? It's um, a good question. <laughs> I, I'd say because this show is a unique blend of both, to your point, documentary and, and drama, we have heroes in the real world that we were fortunate enough to spend time with, and we also have heroes that are 
that are dramatized in our show. And I think in both cases, they are the scientists and the explorers that are out on the front lines that are, in some cases, putting themselves in extreme harm to be able to either report back of environmental issues, science-related issues that could become part of a bigger global conversation. And certainly in the drama, when you've got astronauts who are risking their life and they're going to another planet uh, to establish uh, a beachhead. And you would hope that for anybody watching this, they're going to see heroes that are mostly female, which is actually kind of great, and a few males along the way. Um, and you're going to see what uh, what's, what like, what's the potential of humanity when we put our minds to something that's kind of bigger than all of us. But with an interesting story and to kind of, of course, portray of the course. drama as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really I think was so beneficial in having the, the documentary portion of it and, and the analogous storylines and characters that our documentary partners found is that they spoke to a lot of the motivations and sacrifices that our fictitious characters were, you know, going through, you know, their dedication to science or to protest or, or any of the things that we saw the uh, those characters in documentary do. They just sort of helped unpack a lot of that emotionally, a little heavy lifting for us there. Oh, no, I was just going to ask you this, this kind of combination of two ways of telling, you know, engaging the viewer, uh, do you think that there's uh, more promise to that, like that this could be used for other types of, uh, uh, like a drama based with a documentary? Aren't they doing that a little bit on um, the Silicon Valley show, isn't it? Yeah. A little bit. Are. I, I Yeah, I think. I haven't seen it. I've heard rumors. I mean, it was, it was it's my... It's different. It's very different, and it was my first time getting involved in something like this when we started season one, and I, it was Dee's first time working in this kind of a format. I think that in, in this case it works because you have real people, real technology. It's based on the premise that humans in real life are going to go to Mars. So you have that as the foundation. Uh, and then the drama just really gets to pick up and, and dive deeper into those stories and ultimately unpack the, the human experience. I don't know if you can apply that to every other genre of, uh, of storytelling, but it certainly works you know, for this. Yeah. Right. And he had a nickname. What are some of your biggest production challenges? I mean, it must cost a fortune. No, but I mean, is it like maintaining accuracy? Is it uh, you know getting realistic equipment? What what is it? Location scouting. So what what is the biggest challenge? Well, there. I mean, it's it's a very VFX heavy show, obviously, I mean, um, and I think that that makes it difficult. Our, in a way, the, the stages were not the problem. I mean, in terms of accuracy, we have like fantastic production designers who did a ton of research to sort of get it as close as it probably could be. Um, that's all on our stages. I think the hardest part is there's a lot of green screen involved when you're shooting stuff like this. And um, I think green screen is always is tricky for anybody. It's hard to be dramatic in front of a big old green screen. And so that's, to me, the, the most difficult part about it. Uh, do you ever just, you know, lay awake at night worrying that Neil deGrasse Tyson is going to find a star out of place or something like that? Because <laughs> <laughs> he will. Luckily, he was, he was a part of the show. He was, so he, he was on our team. No, like Dee said, we, you know, we had incredible experts, uh, many of whom we met for, you know, from the first season, and every story point, every script, I mean, we would get all sorts of notes back. Geo literally kept her up at night. maddening. Um, the fact-checking and hammering, well, what it really... Yeah, so we, we, we did have to... That was that was challenging and, and cool though because it was like we got a ton of information. We got to talk to some really fantastically, you know, knowledgeable people. And and really, truth always is stranger than fiction anyway. So nine times out of ten, you'd get stuff from them better than you could probably make up. So. And a lot of times, it's things that people are currently thinking about and currently engineering. Certainly, the sort of architecture of a rocket. Uh, how are you physically going to get materials and people from Earth to Mars and back again? But then as you go further into the future, you know, things like, um, I mean, power generation sort of falls into that earlier category, or water, um, you know, but what are communications going to be like? Are we going to be using virtual reality and holograms? And um, we were talking about this earlier, if a baby's born on Mars, what, like, what happens? There's speculation, but nobody actually knows. There's very little science on it, actually. You mentioned communication. I really want to ask them if in season three, are they going to receive a text from President Trump. <laughs> <laughs> a presidential alert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
He's elected again. Twenty forty two. It's funny. It's funny. I think that's actually one of the things that would be really difficult. Well, I think that it's getting better. But the um, in season one, it was established that basically there's you know, no live communication between Earth and Mars because the, the distance so it was like a twenty minute delay, which. You know, if you're just sort of thinking, you're just saying, uh, what did you do today stuff is not a big deal. But if you're doing, you're dealing with critical, it's happening right now stuff, 20 minutes is a long time to delay. And I think it's like Stephen says it's like getting faster, or I don't know how he knows this, but um, he says it's getting faster. But I think that that delay and that the distance, just the, the pure distance, that there's no one that could get you, you know, I mean, the moon, a few days, right, if they had you. But, like, there's no one that's going to save you. You're out there on your own. That's the one thing that was really interesting to me about these two colonies, that they are alone. There's no 911. There's no armies. There's no government, really, there. And so how does that work? Who's, if there's a conflict, how's that going to work? What are the main differences or new things you added to this season that we didn't have in the first one? Well, season one was really about humans versus the planet. Can we get there? Can we set up a, a, a beachhead there, essentially? Can we lay the groundwork for a future civilization? And while the planet is unleashing all these environmental challenges on our on our crew, season two is really about humans versus humans. Now we are there to an extent. There's a group of people living there. There's a new group of people who are coming in, and their missions are not aligned necessarily. Yeah, with a little bit humans versus the planet, too. Yeah, and then you, on top of that, you've got the environmental issues of just living in a harsh, harsh place. And I think that's the biggest difference. And it was fun to get to explore those interpersonal dynamics, because you also have people that have been living there, in case of our original crew, close to 10 years, 9 years. What does that do to somebody? You can't go outside, you can't take, you know, take a deep breath, you've been living under these domes. Psychologically, what does that do? And then when you have this new group of people that are coming in, operating under a different protocol, where's that, you know, where's that conflict going to spark up? So it's fun in that sense. Okay. Um, uh, thank you. Um, I've forgotten how I was going to read this. Um, right, so uh, Elon Musk, God bless him, is, is sometimes he's a great thing to have around, other times less so. Um, I think it was Elon Musk that actually said no one would want to go and colonize Mars because Mars wouldn't get colonized because no one would want to go that far because it, of all the dangers involved, because it's so far from home and so on. Now, apart from astronauts who train for, for similar missions, you guys are probably the most qualified people on the planet to be able to have an understanding of what it would be like on Mars because you've mocked it up. Would you yourselves go? Not one way. <laughs> I'd wait a little bit. I'd wait till I set up a hotel there. <laughs> cool. Four seasons. Yeah. 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 With the shuttle bus, you know. Yeah, yeah. give it a few more years. I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be harsh. It's gonna be incredibly dangerous. So we've got a soft yes and a hard no here is what I'm sensing. I know if I could knew I could come back. Right. Just to go for in like in, in forever or never, never ever come back at all. A long weekend would be good. I'd be happy with a long weekend. Yeah. But the one thing that like to speaking to just joking aside that you know we started talking about terraforming that was one of the things that was happening uh, in our season here and the idea that I mean, some people think you can terraform it, some people don't, but I think the idea is that it might take a hundred years, but it could get to a place where it was less hostile for, for people to live. And this is just basically ground floor stuff in terms of what Lucum's bringing to the table and what the scientists are doing. So in a hundred years, maybe my grandkids would, would, would have a better time there than I would currently. Thank you very much. So would the producers of Nagio Mars go to mars hard maybe apparently hard honestly honestly same i don't know hard maybe i would love to be a part of a scientific expedition and being on the forefront of discovery but also it's scary uh, uh the, will i get back that's a good question excellent qualifier one-way trip no thank you uh but it also takes months to get oh the reality of it is so interesting i don't i would love to 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 go honestly uh, I, I've looked into it. Uh, I cannot be an astronaut. My skeleton is too large. I am too big. I am a large man, and apparently that's more expensive to send into space. So once again, foiled by the double-edged sword of having a large skeleton. 
Um, yeah, the, the, this show, this episode um, was it, it was so much fun to sit in that press room. And man, I never thought I'd get the chance to talk to Michio Kaku. Uh, what a legend that guy is! Super, super smart, and just felt smarter just being around him. And you know, uh, Lucien uh, Walkowitz and and the the she was brilliant as well. And they all seemed super down, like they seemed super chill. Like when you're that smart, I guess everything is like, yeah, whatever, man. Hey, it's, it seemed pretty cool. And uh, the actors were having a great time. And Andy Weir and and Stephen Pastner. Andy Weir, I love that guy. Uh, read all his books. Uh, uh, the Martian, you know, if you know the Martian is amazing, uh, but yeah, what a what a fun episode, and d- I just love the fact that the show is so science based in reality. This kind of uh, uh, extrapolation of reality into the future, it's it's a lot of fun. They just premiered their season two uh, season premiere just now on the twelfth. You can find that Geo back episodes. You can watch them there. It's a great show. It really is. Has a documentary component as well, so that you get the real science and then you get the dramatic show. And it's really it's super solid. I'm. So, I, I mean, I know I'm a space nerd, and I keep talking about. You know, this is something I picked because I enjoy it. Uh, but it's good, and you should all watch it. I highly recommend. And. Um, that's it. That's it for the show. Thank you all for listening. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. Write us a review. Follow us on all the social media, at Zeros on Heroes on everything, at Mike Mercadol on everything. And uh, come out every week, every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Creek in the Cave in Long Island City, Queens for Unsung Heroes. And uh, just uh, you can go follow us. If you follow us on social media, you will learn whatever the topic of the week that is for that show. And uh, come out and be ready and talk about movies and nerd stuff and personal stories. And it's a lot, a lot of fun with some of the funniest comedians in New York City every Thursday at the Creek in the Cave in Long Island City, Queens. Um, thank you for listening, everybody. Remember to go out and be heroic. Come down.